You're listening to the Sermon Podcast for the Peak Church, located in Apex, North Carolina. Our church is striving to welcome all who are feeling disconnected from God. And so our hope is that over the next several minutes, you will connect with the God that we are talking about, and you'll resonate deeply with the life that this God wants for you. We hope you enjoy. When Pastor Kyle first pitched this new sermon series idea to me a couple of months ago, I thought, ooh, this is going to be fun. Um, Because for those of you who know me, you know that I grew up in the church. I always joke that I was born in a pew and then, like, baptized right after. Um, And aside from my house and school, church really was the place where I spent the most of my time. And the result was that I was the goodest little church girl. (laughs) You would have been hard-pressed to ever find me being bad or, God forbid, breaking the rules. Um, If you could somehow have, like, taken my brain out of my head, I don't know why you would do that, but if you did, you would have seen the words, thou shalt not, just, like, imprinted on there somewhere. I recently found uh, this picture of myself with my family. That's us. And this is such a funny picture because we are all just, like, caricatures of ourselves. If you knew us, you would think it was funny, too, but... The funniest part, I think, is my brother, who's kind of right in the middle of the picture there. Um, It's been about 20 years since this picture was taken, and he still doesn't know how to smile for a picture. Um, He either goes, like, all the way, just show all your teeth, or he looks like he's entirely miserable, and there's just nothing in between. (laughs) That's me in the bottom left-hand corner there, and uh, giving my my best soft smile. And... (laughs) Uh, I think this picture is funny because I'm, I'm about six or seven there, and I'm wearing a cross, which is kind of a weird thing for a six or seven-year-old to do. So apparently, I was just being the good little Christian I was always destined to be. <laughs> uh, when I saw today that I'd be preaching about drinking during this sermon series, though, I was suddenly a lot less excited and a lot more apprehensive. Honestly, what person in their right mind would want to get up here and tell you all the rules about drinking alcohol. Not I. (laughs) And yet here we are. (laughs) So we can thank Kyle for this one. Thank you so much. (laughs) Really appreciate it. Like, we'll give that one to the old associate pastor. (laughs) So here we are. Um, And our question for today is, can I be a good Christian and drink? And the simple answer, according to our story today, is yes. The very first miracle that Jesus ever performs is turning some water into some apparently really good wine. As you heard in the text, scholars estimate that according to the measurements of these purification jars, uh, of which there were six, Jesus made about 120 gallons of wine that day, which is a lot of wine. (laughs) He must have very quickly become everyone's favorite person at that wedding. (laughs) What's ironic is that I have heard people use this scripture passage before to justify why they think Christians shouldn't drink. It's very confusing. But they say because Jesus never drinks in this story that we probably shouldn't either. Like everybody else can have a good time and we can even empower their good time. But we ourselves must abstain and just always be the designated driver or, like, in Jesus' case, the designated walker. I don't know. It doesn't really translate. But uh, 
it's like, it's such a silly argument. It's like um, if we said like a Pillsbury Doughboy doesn't like cookies, right? Just because we've never seen him eat one. I mean, look at him. Look at his little tummy. He loves cookies. <laughs> it's a weird argument. <laughs> so all of that is to say you can take a deep breath. All of you rosé lovers, all you who know the difference between an IPA and like some other kind of beer, I don't know. <laughs> Um, all you brunch mimosa fiends, all you whiskey connoisseurs, uh, you can relax, take a breath. Basically, the answer is yes, you can drink and still be a good Christian. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen. <laughs> I'm just kidding. <laughs> Shortest sermon ever. <laughs> we really could stop there. Uh, but as with everything that we read about in Scripture, it's vitally important for us to consider the context and I would even argue to complicate our reading of scripture a little bit before we finish. And here's what I mean by that. Um, so if you're not a, a biblical scholar, uh, there's quite a lot that has gone into the making of the Bible, right? So all of the biblical authors were writing these things at least 2,000 years ago, and sometimes much more than that, right, in the case of the Hebrew Bible in three separate languages, right? So the New Testament is written in ancient Greek, or Koine Greek, as it's called, um, which just means common Greek. Um, but ancient Greek is not the same as modern Greek. Um, everybody, when I took Greek in college, they were like, are you going to go to Greece? And I don't think they would understand me. It would be kind of like going to England and then speaking Shakespearean English everywhere, only like worse. People would maybe get the gist of what you were saying, but they would think that you were crazy. <laughs> So ancient Greek, very different than modern Greek, very different than modern English, as is Hebrew. So um, English and Greek have a little bit in common. Um, Hebrew and English only have one thing in common, and it is one word, um, and that word is sack, like a big bag. So this is um, the Hebrew word for sack. So you've learned a Hebrew word. Congratulations. Um, you have to read from right to left in Hebrew. So. Hopefully, you, you can now understand a little bit more Hebrew than you did when you walked in. Congratulations. Now, all of that um, just begins to scratch the surface of the context of any biblical passage. Right? Context is not just about language, although it is a lot about language. But it's also about time and culture, uh, communication and technology, or lack thereof. Right? Pretty much everything about our lives and the lives of the people that we read about in the Bible is different. So it can be really daunting to approach the task of reading this very, very old book written by people who have been dead for a very long time, um, with whom we have alarmingly little in common. That's context. And you can start to see why that is also complicating as well. It's complicated. One of the most eye-opening experiences I've ever had uh, for me, was learning or trying to learn ancient Greek. Uh, I took four years of Greek in college and in seminary, which is an embarrassing amount, and I'm still very bad at it. Um, but uh, it's a common enough thing for pastors to study, but I really wish that more people would take ancient Greek, uh, not just so that they can uh, learn a virtually useless language, but also so that they, they can uh, kind of have the same epiphany experience that I did as I was learning it. So here's what I mean. For homework, uh, all the time, my professors would assign us whole sections of the Bible, maybe even multiple chapters, 
uh, for homework, and our job was to translate the ancient Greek into English without looking at a current English, English translation of the Bible. And I have to say, I have never looked so longingly at a Bible from a distance as when I was neck deep in translating 2 Corinthians or whatever. <laughs> it's a lot. It's very challenging. Um, but for a long time, I didn't understand why this was helping, right? I kept asking, why would I need to translate this Bible, which has already been translated hundreds of times by people a lot smarter than I am? <laughs> um, but when I finally started to know enough to be at least proficient at the task of translating, I started to understand what this whole process was for. Um, because what I learned is that as the translator of a text, my decisions could determine what was said in English and what it meant. Um, those of you who are bilingual can kind of understand this, right? It's like if you're trying to uh, say something in a different language and you like can't think of the right word, it's sort of like a how do you say kind of moment, right? That's the whole task of translating the Bible. And this happens most often because, uh, especially with English and ancient Hebrew or ancient Greek, there's never a one-to-one -one equivalence, right? So there's never one word in ancient Greek that means exactly the same thing as a word in modern English. That doesn't really happen. Um, there, there might be multiple meanings of the word in Greek, and then multiple ways you could try to say that in English. So this is all very high level. Let's bring it down a little bit to our scripture passage for today. There's a great example. Maybe you caught it in Joy's reading. You did a great job reading that. Uh, there's this moment, right, where Jesus calls his mother, woman? And it's bad. <laughs> We're all like, Jesus, calm down. <laughs> That's a lot. <laughs> uh, she was just trying to be helpful. You've got the whole, you know, miracle thing. She was just trying to be helpful. Um, so for us, it sounds like a very contemptuous thing that Jesus does, referring to his mother as woman. But uh, in those days, uh, the word really is, the Greek word there really is the word for woman, but it was meant as like a term of respect or endearment. So it would be like saying ma'am or mother, right? But that's not the word that's in the Bible, right? That's not the Greek word. And so Translators have to make a decision here. Are we going to say woman, which is the actual word, but comes across very differently in modern English? Or are we going to say a different word and not be entirely true to the original text? Right? So you kind of have to make a decision like that. This is a super small example and not, not very important, although I think this like, gives people the right or they feel like they have the right to talk back to their moms because Jesus did it. Um, but that's not true. <laughs> he loved Mary. Mary did a lot for Jesus, so <laughs> you better respect her. Um, <laughs> so all of that is to say Bible translation is incredibly complex, not just literally, but also culturally and historically. There's so much that goes into it. So if we were to use some of these more complex tools on our scripture passage for today in John chapter 2, what it would remind us is that Jesus' context uh, was in the first century. He was a first century Jew, right? And so for us today, that means that he lived in a time in which there were no water purification systems or sewers or antibiotics. <laughs> and so when uh, people needed to drink, they often almost never drank water uh, because water was very dirty, which is putting it mildly. <laughs> So mixing a little wine with drinking water was seen as a way to purify the water and also make it taste better. Uh, and so many ancient people, Jesus included, drank wine very, very frequently, probably daily, maybe at every single meal. So armed with just that knowledge, 
we could make an argument that if we really want to follow Jesus, we should replace our drinking water with wine. I know some of you would not be sad if that was the conclusion that we came to today. (laughs) But at the same time, there are also a lot of instances in other places in the Bible where the concept of drinking is discussed in terms of drunkenness or immorality. Or there's that really famous passage about not causing another person to stumble, right? That's a big one. And then there's Galatians 5, 21. This is right before the fruits of the Spirit. These are like the anti-fruits of the Spirit, right? So this is at the end of that list. And Paul says, jealousy and drunkenness and partying. Uh, One translation, by the way, there has orgies, so that's cool. (laughs) Uh, and, And other things like that. So you can see, even right there, the difference in translation makes a pretty big difference. Partying is very different than orgies. But anyway, um, (laughs) I'm sorry, (laughs) y'all. But I, I warn you, as I have already warned you, that those who do these kinds of things won't inherit God's kingdom. Yikes. So which is it? Which is it, Jesus? I don't know. You know, it's really ironic that I'm the one preaching this sermon because I'm not a huge drinker. Um, And now I'm not just saying that because the bishop could be listening, but bishop, if you are listening, it's true. Not really my thing. Um, So I'm not all that interested in alcohol, but I do know uh, about drinking and the effects of drinking um, as they happen. Um, I went to college, right? (laughs) In fact, I remember... Uh, This one night that's become sort of like legendary among my college friends, Uh, there was a party off campus, and um, my friend's sister had come for a visit, and she was just like dead set on going out to party, and so we were like, I guess we could find one somewhere. (laughs) You know that I didn't really have partying friends, I just admitted to like translating the Bible in my spare time, so (laughs) that wasn't really my scene, but we found a party, and Um, She was really happy, and so uh, we could say there was a lot of imbibing happening at this party, among other things, and uh, my friend's sister uh, imbibed quite a bit that night, Um, and I went home shortly after that without having imbibed anything, and um, that the rest of the group went on to another party, and then to a bar. (laughs) So there was a lot of imbibing going on that day, Um, and the next morning when I woke up, they were all asleep in the living room, pretty standard. Um, and after they woke up, uh, there was this moment of, of like, panic sounds that happened. <laughs> um, and so I came in the living room, and I was like, is everybody okay? Um, and my friend's sister, at some point in the night, had gotten a tattoo <laughs> and had no memory of doing so. Um, and we, we had to reassure her over and over again, it's not that bad, it's totally fine, um, could have been worse, uh, but uh, she at some point during that wild night, had gotten these words tattooed across her forearm in a very, it was a lovely script. It was kind of nice handwriting, but it said, it's all happening. (laughs) It's all happening. (laughs) I remember later on in the day, after she had recovered a little bit, gently asking her, "Um, what does that mean? And she had absolutely no idea. She started crying. She's like, I've never even said those words in my life. She was really upset. Um, But once she eventually got over it and moved on, that phrase actually became a part of our group's, like, speak our language, right? So whenever things would get really loud or something crazy would would happen, we would look at each other and shrug and just say, it's all happening. (laughs) 
um, eventually she discovered that there is a song called It's All Happening by a band named Saint Motel. And so she started telling people that was her favorite song, even though it wasn't. <laughs> so that's a, that's a pretty funny, ultimately harmless story. Uh, but we all also, I think, know stories where uh, someone has experienced something much worse than just a bad tattoo after a night of drinking gone awry, right? And I'd also be willing to bet that all of us know that addiction, in this case addiction to alcohol, is a real disease and it's incredibly painful and according to health professionals, nearly impossible to even begin the process of recovering from it. So with all of that complexity in mind, ranging from uh, bad tattoos to addiction to alcohol, uh, what I think the story of Jesus changing water into wine can offer to us can tell us about formulating a Christian approach to drinking is that there is an appropriate time for drinking to not only take place but to be enjoyed and appreciated, right? This picture of God as some holy teetotaler in the sky uh, who expects us to become avid prohibitionists the moment that we decide to follow Jesus is just not the Jesus that we meet in the New Testament who begins his ministry by turning a boatload of water into a boatload of wine so that people can have a good time at the party. But what Jesus himself also tells us later on is that extreme drunkenness, or you could say the abuse of alcohol, can be incredibly destructive. When we drink from a place of brokenness, it can numb us to the world. It can turn us away from the goodness of God. It can keep us from seeing the image of God in ourselves and in other people. It's very serious. Now, I want to be really clear here. Addiction and alcoholism are truly diseases, right? They're chronic illnesses. And I'm confident that God looks upon those who struggle with those things with just as much love as for someone who has never touched a drop of alcohol in their lives. In fact, uh, in the person of Jesus, we see this extreme compassion that God shows for people who are sick and suffering. And that absolutely includes those who suffer from these kinds of things. No one wants them to find healing and wholeness more than God does. As you might already know, American Christians have historically taken alcohol consumption and alcoholism very seriously. In fact, uh, one of the points of pride of being a Methodist, uh, historically, is that Welch's grape juice was actually invented by a Methodist named Thomas Bramwell Welch in 1869. There he is. Looks like a fun guy. Look at that hair. So great. So Welch was an adherent to the Wesleyan Methodist connection in the 1860s. Uh, and which, to be fair, uh, in their book of discipline, so the book of discipline is what we Methodists use to sort of govern our life together. In their book of discipline, it explicitly says, we oppose the manufacturing, buying, selling, or using of intoxicating liquors. So Methodists were a part of the prohibition movement uh, back in the day. Dr. Welch was among them. Um, apparently, that old phrase that Methodists are just Baptists who drink more uh, is not, that didn't apply back in the day. <laughs> But Dr. Welch uh, advocated really strongly uh, for the use of his unfermented grape juice instead of wine for administering communion during church services. And here's the important part of this story. His advocating grew out of his conviction that he believed every single person, every single person, 
even people who struggle with alcohol abuse should always, always be able to participate in the Holy Sacrament of Communion without fear. That was his conviction. These days, you know, grape juice is pretty common. You could go get some at Harris Teeter right now if you wanted to. But back in the day, Dr. Welch basically invented a new way to do a very old thing for the sake of inclusion. He was also, fun fact, a very active member of the Underground Railroad, and his work helped free a countless number of slaves during that time. As it turns out, compassion and inclusion have been values of the church for a very long time. Opening the table of our Lord Jesus Christ to all people has always been the work that God has entrusted us to do. One of the very best parts of the Christian tradition that we get to celebrate at our open table is the hope that at the end of all things, at the end of all of this mess and pain and struggle, the world will be restored to perfect wholeness, that we will all be healed from our addictions and our illnesses, and that all of creation will get to be a part of what will basically be an endless feast at the infinite table of God, where there's always more room to pull up a chair. To put it simply, you could say that heaven is just going to be one big party. Now, the beautiful part about this is that um, it isn't just any eternal party. It's actually a wedding feast, a marrying of heaven and earth together, right? these two things coming together in one place. According to the story of scripture, heaven is just like a wedding feast. And it is in this way that Jesus chooses to begin his ministry. It says that this was the first sign that Jesus did among them and that the disciples believed he was who he said he was because of this moment. It must have been, I mean, pretty unbelievable to witness. I've never seen 120 gallons of wine in one place. Um, But I, I actually don't think it was about the really amazing wine. I don't think it was necessarily even the miracle itself. You see, they were all there, Jesus and his family and their friends, the disciples, celebrating this wedding together. Ancient Jewish weddings are really different from the weddings that you and I have been to in that they are much longer. So Methodist weddings are notorious for being about 15 minutes if you do it real short. (laughs) Uh, These would often go on for days, sometimes even up to a week. And uh, they were full of laughter and dancing and Uh, family and love and good wine and great conversation and an unmatched lightness of spirit for a people who were deeply burdened. So weddings were really good. (laughs) And in that moment, performing this miracle, Jesus not only uh, kept the party going, you might say, but he also kept the family from experiencing what would have been pretty great shame at running out of wine at a wedding. Uh, So Changing water into wine was an act of compassion on behalf of Jesus. But it really wasn't about the wine. You see, I think in that moment, Jesus created a little bit of heaven on earth. It was this sign, this moment, that made the disciples believe. They were able to witness and experience this brief little window, a beautiful picture of the kingdom of heaven, but here and now. And they were deeply compelled by it, compelled enough 
but they continued to follow him. They continued to do whatever it was that he was asking them to do. Super compelling moment. So here's what it comes down to. If we want to live our lives as disciples, as followers of Jesus, I don't think it really matters whether we choose to responsibly consume alcohol or we choose not to consume it at all. As long as we abide by uh, the general rules that John Wesley sort of set out for Methodists, which is namely, do no harm, do good, and attend upon the ordinances of God, or stay in love with God, right? Um, I think that our ethic here should be do no harm. So as long as we're doing no harm, I don't think Jesus is really keeping tabs on what we drink. Get it? Keeping tabs? (laughs) Sorry. (laughs) What Jesus cares about much more, what Jesus wants for us much more is a chance to experience these little glimpses of heaven on earth. Little glimpses of perfect wholeness and peace and joy and celebration. That's what Jesus cares about. If we can find ways to bring about those moments, to to make them happen here and now, over a glass of wine or not, if we can do that, we will be doing the will of God in the world. To make it on earth as it is in heaven until Christ can return in final victory and we all get to feast at his heavenly banquet forever. Thank you for listening to the Peak Podcast. Make sure you subscribe wherever podcasts can be found. For more information on how to get connected with our church, please visit us at thepeakchurch.org.